The Grazadio School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson, and I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. And I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who is the Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Rick. It's good to be here today. Well, it's hard to believe that we're actually in our sixth season of the, the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Tell us a little bit about this year's series and uh, what we can look forward to. Well, we're excited to kick off our sixth year. And as you say, it's amazing that we've been doing this for this long. We have a great lineup of individuals this year with one of our speakers in Orange County again and two this year in Northern California, as well as five here in Malibu. So it's a great series with some great companies and exceptional leaders represented. Well, tell us about your recent visit with uh, Catherine Carlick. Uh, Catherine Carlick is the president of Institutional Sales and Marketing for GE Asset Management. And this was really quite interesting because the week she was with us was the week, the first week, that the stock market fluctuated uh, violently. Mm. And it was really fascinating to have her talk about that, talk about her involvement with the, the federal government on several levels, and to some extent to share her insights about what was going to happen with the economy. Well, certainly a timely uh, interview. Well, uh, let's listen to this conversation with uh, uh, Catherine Karlick, who is President, Institutional Sales and Marketing, GE Asset Management. Well, in our first podcast this year of our Dean's Executive Leadership Series, we have with us Kathy Karlick, who is the President of GE Asset Management. And so, Kathy, we're really pleased to have you with us. It's a pleasure to have you join us in Malibu. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Well, it's interesting times for us to have someone in asset management on campus. Uh, uh, for those who are listening, we did this interview uh, kind of the week after the stock market went schizophrenic up and down and about, what, two or three weeks after the Congress passed the bailout plan. So just speak a little bit to kind of how you're sort of living through that at a place that spends their life worrying about what's going on in the investment world. Well, I think um, right now you feel like you're in the middle of the universe, but the universe is in a bit of chaos. And um, one of my favorite thoughts about when you're in a time of chaos is find your North Star. And I think um, the North Star right now is really about understanding what are the elements creating this chaos? What are the thoughts coming out of both the political as well as the um, Treasury officials that are putting some thoughtfulness into creating a sanity check for all of us to get out of this program? Um, I think the other piece that we need to think about is as um, leaders, you know, what is leadership all about in the time of crisis? So for me, I'm thinking about not only the pension plan at GE where I'm a trustee, but I'm thinking about the connections of the dots about people globally, um, what caused the issues, and um, you know the expertise that we really need to engage across a lot of different disciplines um, to move the uh, country and probably many countries around the world um, forward so that we can get back to a more sane time in our financial crisis. So when you think about that from a global perspective, you know, it's, we've, we've certainly had a global market for a long time, but I think this is the first crisis we've been in where we've seen it sort of reverberate across the world as dramatically as it has. 
right now we've got our government doing a lot of things. We've got governments around the world doing a lot of things. Um, from your perspective and the role that you're in, you know, how much, how does that complicate factors? I mean, how do you manage in that kind of an environment different? You've been in asset management for many, for a number of years. I don't want to age you too much. Uh, but. (laughs) (laughs) But how have you seen that change from a global perspective and how has that complicated what you do? Um, Well, I think the coordinated interest rate cut that we had a few days ago was really a clear indication of cooperation that needed to be had. And um, there's different perspectives if you are an investor coming from a pension plan or if you're coming from a sovereign wealth fund or if you're somebody that's um, in an endowment and foundation such as Pepperdine. So when you think about the crisis, you think about putting yourself in the client's shoes first, and what are they thinking about? Um, One of my favorite sayings is no surprises. So read a lot and be connected with the senior leadership to um, work your way through the no surprise zone. But today's world, data moves quickly. And um, just as you and I were coming down to this meeting, and I, you know, mentioned about an email that I got, and I have a team in London right now trying to think through a deal, and I'm in here in California, and a team in Stanford, Connecticut, that's got to respond to one of these global um, issues right now. The, um, the movement of data, the connectivity through all of our Blackberries or um, some of the other internet services that we all use makes it easier in some senses, but we've got more people's perspectives to put into play as you manage assets around the world. So in the context of all of this, clearly your clients have been pretty stressed recently, I expect. How do you stay on top of so many clients that you're working with? You you manage billions of dollars of assets. How do you stay on top of that? How do you communicate with them in times of crisis like this kind of differently to try to help maintain their sanity and comfort and confidence in what you're doing? Right, and keep them having no surprises to their boss. I I think that's the uh, connection there you're making. Well, um, we have actually put in place a couple of uh, more timely communications. And um, this actually came from our clients at GE. We have something called Net Promoter Score. And when we surveyed all of our clients about four months ago, they said, what we really want from you is more communications around events. And so we said, we can do that because as a pension plan, we're all about what are the events that we need to pay attention to. So we have a daily um, piece that we send out over email that talks about whatever the economics of the day are, the movements in both the bond and the stock market, the movements around the world in crude oil, currencies, it could be wheat, it could be their stock markets, it could be a company that's causing some um, disruption within their own systems. So the daily piece goes out of email, it goes out to every client that requests it. Uh, We also have a communications through the uh, conference calling, and on that it'll be an interactive discussion We have our portfolio managers that come together, talk about the uh, movements, and it could be that day or that week in their respective asset classes. And um, at the end of that, we always engage with our clients to ask the questions that are topical. And then clearly, um, 
in this kind of um, asset management world, you really put your clients first. So each of our clients has a relationship manager assigned to them. And they call our relationship managers and ask the questions that are important to them. So there's a lot of different formal means and informal means, but the lines of communication, I think, have been opened much wider and have used all the different technology available to get the information and the news of the day out to our clients when they need it. So have you learned some things through this crisis that you will continue to do afterwards that you might not have thought of if it weren't for what's going on right now? (laughs) Um, Things that I might do differently. Well, I think what we find is that the asset management industry is about knowledge, and it's about getting the knowledge. I always think about how do you organize it, and then you have to make a decision. And I think maybe what, um, I don't know if I've learned it more or it's reinforced what I've always learned is that knowledge in the asset management industry is power. Mm -hmm. And I think some of this crisis where um, folks are now finding out what the fixed income markets are all about, it's because they didn't have a deep understanding of fixed income markets. Um, When you work with your students, when I um, talk to folks that are interested in jobs, they always want to be the in the equity market. I want to be the stock analyst. I want to be the portfolio manager. And we put up the headlines of a lot of equity-oriented jobs and recruiting, but very few people understand fixed income. And that's a source of a lot of this discomfort with how long it will take to resolve it. What are these securities? What do those acronyms mean? I think, um, you know, I would just say continue to get that knowledge and to continue to get the knowledge from a variety of perspectives. And that will make everybody smarter, um, but you got to make a decision as well, which I think we're seeing from Washington. they got data, and they're acting. So you bring up Washington. We're seeing uh, really as much government in- intervention as we've seen in the financial market since the Depression back in the 30s. Um, What's your take on that? How do you think the steps that the Treasury Department, the Fed are making are going to impact what's going on? And is it going to accomplish what they want to in sort of loosening up the credit markets and so on? Okay, that's a, that's a very big question, <laughs> particularly <laughs> the end part of it. Right. We don't know what the right answer is. Well, here, here's my take on it. First of all, this is a, um, an economy built on capital and labor. And we know that we have plenty of labor to do the jobs that we've got in our economy right now, but we don't have the capital employed in the right locations. So the actions that the Treasury is taking is to inject capital into our economy to start it going again. I think the Federal Reserve is all about, you know, trying to eliminate the systematic banking risk. No country can be successful without a very strong banking system. And ours is... um, We don't know if it's weak or strong. We don't know what the problems are. And I liken it to, um, you know, banks are not lending to a bank. You can only get overnight funding. And banks have traditionally lent long-term. Think about the 30-year mortgages out there. Think think about the um, high-yield market. Um, Goes out to five and 10 years. We've actually created 100-year bonds that have been issued by not only countries, but also companies. So we have a history of long-term lending. We just have a very, very, very poor piece of this credit creation called overnight lending in front of us. So I think the interjection of the capital to our economy is critical. I think that people are figuring out, is this the right way to do it? And we've seen numerous new programs come out 
And some of it's to buy assets. We don't know the prices of clearly, but they're hoping to put a bottom on those um, prices for the securities. We have a backstop for commercial paper. We have increased the FDIC insurance on individuals' um, savings and CD accounts, which is critically important to the individuals. And um, um, we have done some work around the HOPE program for homeowners and their mortgages. So all of this is to loosen it up. Now, nothing's going to be overnight. Mm -hmm. We've got a long-term issue of being over-leveraged in the country. And so the reaction to all these programs will start working their way, lubricate the system. And um, I think we're going to see some better sites in the mid to the late 2009 time period. So still a few more months of a challenging economic time before right. these have time to work their way through right. the system and really have an impact. Right. And we're talking about the financial crisis. And I think what we're all turning our attention to now is, you know, what does the economics mean for this? We're slowing down oil at a dollar, I'm sorry, $140 per barrel back down to 80. I think that's a nice lift for all consumers. Um, and it happened pretty quickly, one would very say, quickly. Very, yes, quickly. very quickly. Um, $80 a barrel is much better than $140 a barrel. So I think we're now turning our sights to we've got some of that lubrication in the system. But what does that mean for the companies? How slow will all these interrelated global companies and countries you know, impact sales, particularly in this holiday selling period that we're going to be up in front of very shortly? One of the things that comes to the forefront during difficult times and times of crisis is uh, who steps up to the plate and is a leader in this situation. And clearly at GE, you focus a lot on leadership and leadership development. I want to talk a bit more about that in a minute, but I would like to have you share just a little bit about your story with our audience, just in terms of how you sort of got into this business and got to where you are. I don't know 20, 30 years ago, whether you ever thought this would be what you'd be doing with your life. But, you know, we have many students and alumni who sort of think about what they want to do with their career. So I'd like right. to hear you share your story right. just a little bit, because you are trying to provide leadership in an organization at a very difficult time. And how did you get to that place? Right. Well, you know, it is about 30 years, I have to say. Um, I actually had an awesome time in high school doing a stock market game. Oh, and I'll go back to great. that story I told you earlier. You know, nobody knew fixed income. We all knew how to read the Wall Street Journal and all the stock quotes. So in my economics class in high school, I fell in love with the market and um, went looking for colleges. So I didn't want to, you know, to my, I don't know, a little bit of my regret, I went for the college that had the fewest liberal arts courses, which I would not <laughs> advise anybody to do nowadays because I think that was a little bit of um, a, a weakness in my education from 30 years back. But I went to Babson College mm -hmm. and focused clearly on business. And um, funny thing that you ask about how I got into this, I graduated during a recession. I've looked for three different jobs in my career during recessions, and there are good jobs for good people always out there. And I think that's something, you know, for an educational institute as it's you are. It's an encouraging are, word for our students and alums. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. There are, there are ways to get jobs even during um, poor economic times. So, um, you know, I got into... Um, Travelers Insurance Company, and I really, I, I took the first job that came my way that had to do with analytics because I love to analyze. And what I realized going through my first few jobs is that I had to get, I had to get into investing. And I got a break because I said something to the right person that happened to be an HR person. And um, 
I went to Northeast Utilities, a utility company that had one of the most massive capital expansion programs to build power plants mm -hmm. um, in their service territory and um, got to see all the ins and the outs of Wall Street. I looked at every instrument back there. In the 80s, they had um, auction rate notes of a different sort. They had preferred stock that they had uh, variable dividend rates on. They issued debt. They issued equity. They issued municipal bonds. I mean, every instrument that we're seeing today was available back then as well. So, you know, I got into um, actually the buy side of investing when I moved to back to travelers, as a matter of fact, and took a role doing private placements. And I analyzed companies in order to um, go and get approval to be um, a lender to them and in massive amounts of lending. And the numbers are big, but it was not unheard of to issue $50 million or $100 million um, to them for their capital programs. Now, along the way, I have to say, I got an MBA. Mm -hmm. I got that in accounting. I started out with the uh, bachelor's in finance and economics. Um, I got my CFA along the way, which is the Chartered Financial um, Analyst Program, which is extremely important in the investment management mm -hmm. field. And then, you know, you catch a couple of lucky breaks. So um, when I thought about how to move my career, started out as an analyst. People want to always move in to be a portfolio manager. I probably had to ask four times before I got that role at Travelers. So but perseverance paid it. off. Perseverance <laughs> paid off. And, um, you know, thinking about what you want to do, um, I also made myself an expert. In all the career history here, it's knowing your markets. I had the opportunity to understand almost every segment of the business community. So I've looked at banks. I've looked at retail companies. My love is oil and energy, probably from my days starting at the utility company. But I do remember um, when oil at the, uh, let's see, in the 90s was 9 and $10 a barrel. Right. And, you know, my portfolio manager said, Kathy, you're the energy expert. Do we buy the bonds of these companies right now? And I said, well, it's not going lower than 9 bucks, so we're buying. And we bought. And it was a great move. Again, knowledge and make a decision and move on it. The, um, you know, the role that I um, am in now is leading sales and marketing, and I've been in this for two years. And it's actually a move I made after I was the chief investment officer at GE. Um, for fixed income. And it's a matter of w figuring out, can you lead a group of people? Because at some time, it's not about trading the bond. I have traders. It's not about making that portfolio decision. You hire good portfolio managers. But I wanted to get into leadership, set vision, implement a strategy. And I think along the lines of Pepperdine with your entrepreneurial spirit, my alma mater also is an entrepreneurial right. school, and I'm a builder. And I've had the luxury to build within a very large corporate structure, two times, you know, Travelers and then Citigroup and now GE. So um, my entrepreneurial spirits come out when I think about building teams and what's the vision and how do you build a business because it's about the shareholders. So, um, you know, there's a lot of certifications I gave you. I never thought that I would be um, 30 years into a business and asked to get more licenses, but I've had to get three more. <laughs> Even in recent years. <laughs> in sales, you know, to be a leader in an asset management business, um, you're leading people that are registered representatives. So as a leader, I had to do more licensing, but that's about the lifelong learning skills that we all need to have as leaders. So, you know, 
there's the um, the work experience, the vision of where you want to get to, moving around a couple times, stating what you really want to do to people that can network you to another job, and then um, going after that with a lot of commitment to get a job done. So your academic background is very technical in nature. I mean, you did it in the context of an MBA, but it was still in accounting. You had a finance undergrad. But then you talk about now it's really as much about managing the people and the team. Was was there a point in your life where you sort of saw that transition happening, or did it sort of naturally evolve? Was there any sort of special training you did, whether it was at GE or somewhere else, that helped you refine those more human people skills beyond the technical skills that you had? Talk a little bit about that and transitioning from the more technical role into the more people-oriented role. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a great question because uh, I have to say I found a lot of likenesses between managing a team of sales and marketing individuals globally and managing a team of analysts and portfolio managers and um, traders. Part of being a good leader is a listening skill and finding out how you can connect with individuals on your team. Was there a natural moment on it? I I don't know. I mean, I I don't think I woke up one day and said, wow, you know, that's for me. Mm -hmm. I think that it just was natural in me to take that leadership role. I'm first in the family of three girls, and um, there was no if ands, or buts in my mind that I would ever not lead a, t- a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just was, it was always there. And um, I think my father wanted boys, so <laughs> <laughs> I think he got it at me um, with the leadership and the business mind. Um, so, you know, being a leader is very difficult. Some of the traits that we look at at GE for uh, leaders that can be part of a growth culture is your inclusiveness. How well do you think about individuals that don't come from your same walk of life because we are a global company? Um, You think about the external focus, which is about your clients. And so when you're in sales and marketing, it's easy to think about your clients because that's who we work with every day. but it's not natural if you're sitting doing a, an accounting job. It's not maybe natural if you're thinking about the best IT system that you can put in place. So we're really trying to think through how everybody can say, you know, it's about the client, it's about the client, it's about the client. They are the source of the top line. Um, I, I think one of the favorite growth traits, leadership traits, is clear thinking. Mm-hmm. And I was advised a long time ago, if you're a leader, you're the one that sets vision. And that is your job. Nobody else sets vision. And I think to set vision, you have to be a clear thinker because there's a lot of data that comes at you from so many places. There is so much noise. And individuals are depending upon you to be a clear thinker, being able to communicate that and communicate that and communicate that again. <laughs> so you have to reinforce. Keeps yeah. coming up and how important it is. Right. And you got, so you got to keep reinforcing that. You know, and I think, and I'll just go back to the entrepreneurial nature. You know, imagination. This country is um, such an entrepreneurial place. The innovation, the products that we develop, the processes that we develop, the ways that we're thinking about either green and the um, environment right now, or the ways that we're thinking about how technology can advance those that are um, homebound, those that are older, those that need, you know, materials put in a better format so they can read it um, if they have some handicaps. I mean, there's a lot of things that this country has put forth because we can imagine very well. So um, 
I think the last thing on, um, you know, leadership is that you're a coach. You're a coach of people. And you better like people. <laughs> because they're going to be there for you and with you and at you. Use whatever mm-hmm. words you want. But y- you really have to genuinely care about that team as a leader. And um, there are tough moments when you have to give them tough messages and great moments when you're going to give them great messages. And um, it's, it's a scary job being a leader at time. So you, t- you talked a lot about sort of the entrepreneurial nature, not only of this country, but, you know, it's kind of through your career you had training in that as obviously going to BAPS. And you're in a very, very large company. How does being entrepreneurial play out in that kind of an environment? You've been in large companies most right. of your career. We tend to think of it as being, you know, I've got a startup company and I can do what I want and make it grow. But yet you use that term in the context of being in a huge corporation. Right. So for those people in that kind of a setting who might think that's not something I can do, how would you encourage them right. to function as an entrepreneur within a large corporate setting? Well, let me give you a couple of really good examples, mm-hmm. I think, that'll help explain it to the listeners. First, products just don't naturally happen. And um, in the asset management world, I listen to what the marketplace is requesting for products, and I pay attention to the trends. So let's talk about a trend in the asset management industry right now. We know that um, people are getting older, and as they get older, they traditionally get more wealthy. And individuals are thinking about how they would like their asset management products delivered to them. Is it a mutual fund? Could they get hedge funds in a packaged environment that has traditionally only been meant for institutional players? So you can be an entrepreneur in your company by thinking about what new products you need to respond to the market demands. That, that's one way. Um, I think the second way an entrepreneur is um, an important in a context of a large or a small organization, particularly once you get going, is how, how do you think about your processes? And GE is a very big process-oriented company with our Six Sigma Mm -hmm. and our workouts and the lean processes that we have. But just because you're handed a process doesn't mean that that's the process that is going to carry you forward and be successful. So I think about how I deliver um, reports to my clients. I think about how I deliver um, information across my teams. I think about how I can put together um, a better way to get more productivity from the group that has to respond to major questionnaires going out to consultants. And all of that, you can think about the entrepreneur, be innovative, what's a better way, and how can I just you know, el- eliminate some of the um, non-productive or unvalue-added checks or steps or processes along the way, because the best thing you want to try to do is optimize that return on your equity. So let's go back a little bit to the sort of core of what you do, asset management. We obviously have a lot of people out there listening. They're probably pretty nervous right now about (laughs) what they have invested. Um, You, uh, at GE Asset Management, you manage assets for individuals and for institutions. What kind of advice are you giving your clients right now about their investments and how they should be thinking about that given sort of the uncertainty and the volatility? Well, um, we have about 200 institutional clients. So let me talk about, you know, how we uh, provide information and what we're t- saying to our clients. 
First, we know from history that the returns come from an appropriate asset allocation policy. And that means you have to figure out what kind of returns and what kind of risk that you're willing to take. And once you set a policy, you you have to recognize that you need diversification. So that's, I would say, mm-hmm. a first overriding principle that we should Pretty think about. Pretty basic investment Pretty advice. basic, <laughs> and it carries you, you know, through the ups and the downs. Right. And, you know, people talk about dollar cost averaging in as an individual, that you put money in every month, and you're going to catch some high months, and you're going to catch some low months. Now, there's a incredibly interesting chart that shows if you just take the return of the stock market for each and every year back from the 30s to the present, that when you have downdrafts 10, 20% years, they're generally followed by two very good years pretty promptly. That's the value of the mm-hmm. asset allocation. You don't know what's going to strike hot sure. next. So we are thinking about you know that asset allocation piece. We also um, are thinking about the defensive nature of, well, we have this market, if you have bills to pay or retirement payments to make, as a pension plan does, or let's just think about uh, some of the operating expenses mm-hmm. that an endowment requires from their fund, um, think about your cash management program. And how are you making sure that you have enough cash on hand so that you could pay the liabilities or the operating budget or the um, the, the retirement checks? Sure. So Which that's has been one of the challenges in this right. market. The sure. lack of liquidity. The liqu- right. you're, you're sort of selling what you can sell, maybe not what you want to sell because there's just not a lot of liquidity. So we're, you know... Thinking about and taking a step, making sure that you have more liquidity on hand right now. Um, the other area that we know is going to be coming up is that there will be some awesome opportunities because everything is repricing and get, mm-hmm. getting de-risked right now. So, you know, you have to think about, so what is your risk level going forward? Are you going to move to the left and be much more conservative? Are you going to have the sophistication of all the knowledge that you've been gaining and gathering to make a decision and go and buy some things that you know have been repriced and are very good values. Look at it as an opportunity Correct. now that the market has readjusted. Right. Sure. Right. You know, and we don't give the advice to our clients that you should be in, you know, stock A or stock B or out of. That's what our portfolio managers do right. and, and, and approach it in a portfolio format. So we spend a lot of time in the business school here talking about developing leaders, and we've talked a little bit about that in the context of your career. But um, and our mission is to develop value-centered leaders, and we talk about it in the context of really helping people to be responsible in the way they practice business and, and to be successful. But as you think about your own leadership style and your approach to working with those that you deal with, you know, what would you identify as you know two, three, four sort of core values for you as a leader, and how those play out in the way you work within the organization? Well. The first thing that came to mind is whatever example that you are, however you put yourself out in front of the public, is how you're going to be perceived. Mm -hmm. So this is the classic, you better walk the talk. And, um, you know, I often say to my team, if they uh, have a day that's troubling and everybody wants to go and, you know, kibitz a little bit and complain, I go, no, as a leader, when you walk out this door, others are watching you, and you need to be the example of leadership through tough times. So, you know, be, be concerned if employees have questions. Um, don't appear that you're, you know, kibitzing. You, you got to provide that leadership in times of trouble. So that's mm-hmm. really one of the, um, I think, classic, oh, you know, sayings that we have, but it's coming into play, I think, a lot right now. So walk the talk and know that you are the example a lot of right. people are looking up to. Um, some of the other values that I think about is partnership and teamwork. 
because without a team, you're nobody. And um, I think that it's tough to get people to play together, and 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 you don't always have to play because you have the exact same um, objective in mind personally, but you have to know what that corporation is expecting of you. And you have to play your spots well. And not everybody, you know, whatever team that you have, not everybody gets to be the dean, not everybody gets to be the president of sales and marketing, but I depend upon a lot of people and they depend upon me playing my role as they do of you playing your role. So, but you gotta have a partnership in that. This is not an ego game. This is not an I topped you game. This is about taking a group of people, motivating them, understanding what motivates them, and then getting everybody to work together in a cohesive team for the goal. Um, And the last thing, I think you had brought up the word, you know, ethics, because you really are about um, an ethical organization. And I think, um, you know, I just have to say the word honesty. You know, be honest when you deal with either your suppliers or your clients or your employees. And some messages are very tough to give. Um, and some clients give us tough messages. <laughs> I'm at sure time. they do. But you know, you really want it to be. You want it to be on that honesty level. So I'm not guessing what the real message is. And um, we have a lot of uh, compliance checks at my company. And being in an industry that's under such high scrutiny, um, you know, there's rules that the SEC has that. Um, you know, Department of Labor has, that the FDIC has. You know, you walk down all these different financial um, regulations that you have to really pay attention to be a good corporate citizen and to be a good citizen in your corporation as well. So honesty is just a huge value because it's all about your reputation. Mm-hmm. And if it's gone, it's gone. Maybe somebody will give you a second chance, but hard to get that back it's once a, you lose it. Exactly. Exactly. So I think those are three examples that I would give, you know, the partnership, the, um, uh, uh, and the honesty. You know, the other thing that comes out as I listen to you, and we had lunch earlier today, so we had a chance to visit over lunch as well. But you talk so much about, uh, in your role as a leader, you know, supporting your clients, supporting your, uh, your employees. Um, and so there's also a humility that comes out in that, that it's not really about you, it's about the other people that you're serving, whether that's your clients or your staff or others. And I think that's a wonderful characteristic and trait as well that seems to come out as you talk about the role that you have and what you do. Well, you think about the business world is about clients. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it really is. And, and, and clients are, you know, why I'm in business. If I had no clients, I don't know. I guess I'd be reading a book someplace on how to get well, them. Well, it's like we, our clients are students, so right. we need students as you need clients. Right. And they're the core of what we do. Right. So. I, I, you know, you have to think about your point about, you know, is there ego in the world of business? Sure there is, because you have to have a you have to have some ego to be mm-hmm. in this game to sure. get to, uh, to the perseverance. But um, it really is that classic saying, you know, there's no I in team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it has been such a pleasure visiting with you, Kathy. We appreciate you sharing your insights about all the interesting things that are going on in the economy right now, and also some about your own personal story and leadership style. I know it will be very meaningful uh, to our alumni and friends and students that are listening. So thank you for your time.
Well, Linda, that was a fascinating conversation. We had a wonderful evening with Catherine Carlick, and she was certainly well-received by the audience, uh, particularly because of her insights during this very challenging yeah. economic time. Yeah, I'm sure that's right, and I'm, I'm sure that we can expect more of the same. Well, tell us who is next and when they're going to be here. Well, coming up on November 13th, we have Anne Winblad, who is the co-founder and managing director of Hummer Winblad Partners. It's a venture capital firm, and this one will actually be in Northern California. So we're moving north uh, for November 13th, and then very soon after that, on November 18th, we will have Robin Kaminsky, the executive vice president of Activision Publishing here in Malibu. Well, we look forward to those. Let me invite our listeners to uh, tune into these podcasts and video uh, cast in several different ways. First, you can subscribe by going to bschool.pepperdine.edu slash Dells, that's D-E-L-S, or we're very proud to uh, offer this year video and podcast both on YouTube and iTunes. So until next time, we invite you to uh, join us for the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Why is Pepperdine University's Grazio Dio School of Business and Management considered the smart way for working professionals to earn an MBA? Well, first and foremost, Forbes magazine ranks Pepperdine's fully employed MBA program among the top 20 business schools for return on investment. So financially, it's very smart. And Pepperdine's program is built around real-world curriculum, not just theory, so students can apply what they learn in class at the workplace the next day. So now, does earning an MBA from one of the most highly regarded business schools in the world sound like a smart move to you? Then call 1-800-933-3333 for more information. That's 1-800-933-3333. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management. The smart business decision. And Pepperdine also offers a top-ranked executive MBA program.